This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader, edited by Bill V. Mullen and Christopher Viles. Since the birth of fascism in the 1920s, well before the global renaissance of white nationalism, the United States has been home to its own distinct fascist movements, some of which decisively influenced the course of U.S. history. Yet, long before Antifa became a household word in the United States, fascist movements were met time and again by an equally deep anti-fascist current. Many on the left are unaware that the United States has a rich anti-fascist tradition, because it has rarely been discussed as such, nor has it been accessible in one place. This reader reconstructs the history of U.S. anti-fascism in the 21st century, showing how generations of writers, organizers, and fighters spoke to each other over time. The U.S. anti-fascism reader, edited by Bill V. Mullen and Christopher Viles, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is a second Bernie 2020 election special, and this one I co-hosted with Michael Brooks from a Boston Canvas kickoff on Sunday. Brianna Joy Gray was going to join us, but her flight got delayed. Fortunately, we had the great Natalie Shore join us instead. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, keep doing it and do more of it. We are winning. This fight is and will remain tough as hell from now through when, knock on wood, we are in the White House. Do not be intimidated by bumps along the way because big and important fights like this are never, ever easy. Anyhow, later this week, I'm going to have a special on down-ballot candidates because we've got to do a lot more than elect a great president. We have to elect people, good people, all over the place, up and down the ballot. Unfortunately, that episode will come too late for California, which votes on Tuesday. And I want to give a special shout out to DSA candidate Jackie Fielder, who is running in California Senate District 11. Everyone listening in San Francisco right now, please get out there and make sure Fielder wins this critical race for tenant rights. Also, best of luck to recent dig guests, Heidi Sloan and Jessica Cisneros in Texas. And a quick note on the state of the presidential race. Pete and Klobuchar and Steyer are all gone. Yet Warren is still there. And her campaign has made it clear that they don't think they can win the most delegates. Their plan, this is the plan as they've revealed it, is to deny Bernie the nomination and have her imposed as the nominee by the convention on a second ballot. Warren must drop out. She is making herself into not only a rival of the left, but our outright enemy. The Working Families Party and any other endorser tied to the left 
must immediately break ties with Warren and call for her to drop out. She has made her plan clear, and it's deeply, deeply disturbing. Okay, more briefly than ever, if you depend on this podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. That's it. That's the pitch. Also, some all-American nativism events coming up soon. This Wednesday, March 4th at Trident Books in Boston, 7 p.m., in conversation with scholar Stephanie DeGoyer and Cosecha activist Brenda Valladares. Then, New Orleans, on Wednesday, March 11th, at Octavia Books, a double book event with Thea Riofrancos, who, among many other things, is the co-author of A Planet to Win. We will be in conversation with our good friend and activist, Nikki Thanos. Then, Saturday, March 14th in Houston at the Montrose Center, sponsored by Houston DSA. Sunday, March 15th in McAllen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. Stay tuned for details. Then, Monday, March 16th in San Antonio at 120 Adams Street, which I believe is an AFT union hall, but I'm not sure, Uh, 120 Adams Street in San Antonio, Monday, March 16th, sponsored by the San Antonio chapter of DSA and PODER, the Social Justice Caucus of the San Antonio Alliance, in conversation with immigrant rights leader Carolina Canizales. Wednesday, March 18th, in Dallas at Deep Vellum Books, in conversation with Christian Stephanie, of North Texas DSA. And then Thursday, March 19th in Austin at the Workers Defense Project, sponsored by Austin DSA. Okay, let's get to it and I'm going to leave the introductions to Jacob Kramer, my good friend, left-wing children's book author and Bernie volunteer. Good luck everybody. Um, we have Dan Denver, who's the host of the Dig Podcast with Jacobin Magazine. He's going to be in conversation with Michael Brooks from The Michael Brooks Show. And we have Natalie Schur here, um, who is a journalist who specializes in the healthcare beat and also has an amazing uh, Twitter presence, which I follow. Very spicy. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of our other guests, Brianna Joy Gray, was... Um, delayed and was unable to be here, but we have a wonderful panel. So we're just going to dive right in. Um, And what I will say is that just what I said at our last Dig podcast, which is the Dig is a podcast that does not only interpret the world, but aims to change it. Is that correct? Um, And that's what we're doing here. So this this event is not simply to learn and listen from these wonderful interpreters, but to actually go out afterwards and change it. So if you don't have a turf number to go canvas, that's something that you can get afterwards. And we're going to be doing a training and then we're going to send you out in the world to get votes for Bernie and win Massachusetts. So we're here to win Massachusetts, which uh, of course is just internet harassment, but in real life. (laughs) A very important targeted harassment. <laughs> Campaigning in a state to win. 
but it's pretty remarkable. We in Rhode Island have been helping to organize in the Massachusetts campaign since it kicked off. And at first, it didn't seem like one that the Bernie campaign really thought was a viable target. And now recent polls have Bernie up pretty significantly. What have you been seeing so far on the ground here, Natalie? Yeah, so I've uh, canvassed a couple times in Massachusetts now, uh, mostly in the Boston area. And I think it's I think it's pretty heartening. Uh, there's still a strong Warren presence here, uh, which I think you'll find if you canvass today. Uh, and I think that there will be throughout the Boston area. I've heard otherwise outside of the Boston area. Uh, but I think we have to understand this not only as a Massachusetts issue, but as um, you know, a California and Texas issue that they're doing so, so well in major states uh, that they, I think, decided to allocate some more attention and resources to other states that uh, feel like bonus states after some of the major ones. So I think that's really a testament to uh, the incredible organizing that's been going around uh, on around the country. So excited about that. Massachusetts is certainly like a very sweet cherry on top state to win. It's, d- it's a, yeah, if you if you like fruit on your desserts, that's the <laughs> analogy I would use. I mean, I, I think it's it's also necessary to put any game playing at the convention out of question. So he actually, we need to rack up margins and we need to compete everywhere. And, uh, you know, I haven't lived in Massachusetts for quite a while, but I grew up in this state and I, you know, grew up in the other part of it in Western Mass. And if you look at this state broadly and obviously we want everybody's votes but i think that in the well in the popular imagination massachusetts used to just be like harvard and mit and now it's like harvard and mit plus like the town uh and and that's you know okay but there's this is a real agricultural state this is a real labor state this is a state that actually has a lot of you know, relatively speaking, diversity, including the Caribbean community in Boston, Portuguese, Italians, Cape Verdean community in Cape Cod. And it's a working place. So this is actually exactly where uh, this coalition should be winning uh, and speaking out to as many different people as possible. And I think that that's in the polls. And I do think that if certain candidates are building their ongoing presence in the race predicated on some type of like Rube Goldberg strategy for the convention, it's very important that maybe they lose their home states. How many people that, (laughs) how many people have been canvassing here so far? Amazing. Yeah. I've been canvassing in Massachusetts uh, every weekend since New Hampshire and my best doors I've ever had in either Massachusetts or New Hampshire was, was the projects in Fall River And it is remarkable how much Massachusetts does not fit the mold of this weird stereotype that it has as sort of the Boston Brahmin John Kerry land in national media. Um, And I think that this that the way Super Tuesday appears like it will go in this state if we all do our job between now and then will also be to kind of repudiate this absurd stereotype of of the state. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, And so many absurd stereotypes about so many things. So I'll leave it at that. So speaking of of like basically everyone except Biden hanging in the race in an attempt to get or including Biden, I guess, in an attempt to get selected by superdelegates on a second 
round, how should we be thinking about that and preparing for it? Obviously, the number one thing we got to do is win a majority of delegates so they can't pull any shit. But how should we be thinking about the very real possibility that if there's an opportunity to pull some shit that they will? Yeah, so I think that one thing that people miss in this conversation uh, is the idea that obviously getting an outright majority is preferable. That's the outcome that we want to shoot for. And I think that that's the outcome that is very much within our grasp. Uh, but beyond that, the the outlook is so different if we get 40-something percent versus if we have a plurality of 27 percent uh, ahead, you know, ahead by two points uh, of the next person, something like that. I mean, the the margins matter, uh, and we are in a way stronger rhetorical, moral fighting position uh, if we have something higher than 40. And so all of that is, um, you know, like you guys said, margins matter. Um, getting every vote matters. Um, I think that Non-viable candidates uh, dropping out of the race matters if we can get to that point. And so I think that amassing as many votes as possible and that we're no longer thinking about uh, who's in first place versus who's in second place. I think a few weeks ago it really did look like, okay, having having so many moderates vying for the same lane isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I, I've come to revise my thinking uh, on that somewhat. Uh, I think that as many votes as possible coming from as many places as possible uh, is very helpful. And we all know that um, all of the candidates right now, I think except for Bloomberg in the last poll, have uh, the supporters of all of the candidates have Sanders as their second choice. Uh, and so however, however politically incoherent that seems to people <laughs> who are in this room, who I think are by definition- People are weird as hell, ordinary people. And yeah. thank God- Thank God yeah. people are not the way that cable news construes them as or else like this world would be a much worse place. I talked to a woman once who was like, I love Obama. I wish Biden ran. Hillary Clinton's a criminal, so I won't vote for her. I don't like Trump, but I'm excited that Newt Gingrich might get a cabinet role. And why didn't you guys nominate Bernie? He's such a nice man. That's how people think. Yeah, I was uh, canvassing last night. It was cold. It was, you know, the sun had already set, so 20-something degrees. And uh, we canvassed this younger guy. He invites us in. So, great, you know, it's warm, toasty. We're warming up our fingers. And he said, yeah, you know, I decided on Bernie. I'm all in. I was almost going to go for Pete. I decided on Bernie <laughs> at that point. All right, thanks, man. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing else to say. Bernie um, does a much better Obama impression than Pete. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as we were discussing, His single white female earlier, first time as Obama, does. first time as Obama, second time as Buttigieg. Oh, yeah. It's really <laughs> sad. You do hate to see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> say a little more about you revising your your take on this in terms of like feeling like it's a better thing for it to basically be what it looks like it's becoming now, which is a Biden Bernie race, because the conventional wisdom that I think was shared by many of us in Bernie land as well is that it wasn't a bad thing for the moderates to be dividing up their votes. Um, I, I, you know, this this gets into some some game theory that I'm not necessarily prepared I think we're to play ready for out. Some logic. All all right now, I think I think maybe a two person race isn't what I want. Uh, I think maybe um, you know I, I wouldn't mind a uh, like three to five person race at the moment, uh, depending on which those candidates would be. And I think that uh, right now it looks as if at least a strong plurality of the voters of most candidates will go to Bernie. Um, and so as long as the rest of their votes are relatively split between three to five candidates, I think that we'll be in a good position. And that, that actually 
brings two quick things up that I'd like you guys to touch on. So one, I think it's really important, and I'm sure you're experiencing this when you're canvassing, that there is probably, I mean, I don't think there's a single modern politician that there's a bigger disconnect between what normal people think of them and how they're covered in the media. And that's not just like because we like Bernie. That's just like reality. You can see that in polls. You can certainly experience that anecdotally, even amongst people who aren't necessarily planning on voting for him. Everybody outside of like cable studios are like, yeah, he seems like a good person. So and I think that uh, that's very important to keep really, really centering in the narrative about how he is not only the front runner, he is somebody that people I think generally, and I want to get your thoughts on this, would be satisfied with. And the only question mark for them is whether or not he can win, which I think obviously I think he can or we wouldn't be here. The second thing really quick, and this tax on to South Carolina is a bigger project that's actually really important for this campaign and and for a variety of things. Like there is a really diverse black electorate inside itself. It's reported and talked about as a monolith that's literally inaccurate. And so in some ways that like it calls for, you know, humility and like there's no surprise that Biden won South Carolina and there's a lot of historical reasons behind it. There's a lot of reasons that make sense from a certain perspective, right? Like I should never be blaming any electorate, period, right? And at the same time, we're already putting like deplorables type thing. Yeah, like and that was a very voters. profoundly yeah. stupid thing yeah. to do there as well, right? So in but we know in 2016 that Bernie's share of the African American vote started to shift substantially as soon as you get into the industrial Midwest where there is a very powerful labor tradition, a powerful black labor tradition. Even inside New York, you know, campaigning in Manhattan versus Brooklyn, that those are radically different traditions in a way, right? Like Manhattan is this powerful tradition going back to Adam Clayton Powell and the great migration in the Caribbean is very influential in Brooklyn. So I think there's a way of puncturing this talking point that, oh, well, it shows he can't, you know, pull, uh, you know, the coalition. I mean, one, that isn't true. It's erasing a lot of support. But two, it's also like you can't just keep on condensing incredibly complex electorates to the your purposes of talking points because you're eliminating huge complexities in them. So anyways, I like your thoughts on, on both of those. Yeah, no, I, th- I think those are both really important points on the first one. In all of my weeks of canvassing, I only met two MSNBC style liberals who hate, who like disliked Bernie. Everyone else, including uh, Amy Klobuchar supporter, I met, you know, various other people, they, they liked Bernie, even if Bernie wasn't their first choice. And most of the people I was talking to, Bernie was their first choice. But the people I, for whom he wasn't the first choice, they still liked him. And they were worried about electability. This was where the the media kind of narrative was was infecting things, but nothing makes someone look like a winner as much as winning. And with some with some small exceptions like yesterday, Bernie has been winning solidly. And that I think I think generally speaking, we don't have to worry about ordinary Democratic Party voters if knock on wood Bernie is the nominee lining up solidly behind him. And I'm actually for someone on the left Socialist left, fairly optimistic 
about Democratic leaders ultimately lining up behind him as well. Because if we believe that they're sort of ideologically vacuous, the Democratic Party establishment, and care about their own power, then I don't see why we won't expect to see something similar to what happened with Trump, who realigned the entire Republican Party behind him and rendered never Trumpers, you know, to the the oblivion, uh, the the margins of uh, of newspaper columns. A small group of people who get Fox gigs, right? Yeah, they, they just uh, I can't believe I would. This is not my party. Yeah, and now they get to be never Bernie and never Trump people simultaneously. It'll be great. And, and then, I, yeah, I think your point on the black vote is is super important. I mean, we we already have we not only have evidence from this from 2016 where where Bernie did. Uh, much better amongst black voters in like Michigan or in Wisconsin than he did in in South Carolina, but also just from this election already, Bernie was right behind, just a few percentage point points behind, I believe, Biden in the black vote in Nevada, which is not an insignificant oh, yeah. black vote, right? Not insignificant at all. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the the point about the black electorate is really important. Uh, you know, Bernie won young people overall, I think, uh, young black voters in South Carolina as well. Um, and so I think it was important to realize that it's a disproportionately older state, which is something that I hadn't realized about South Carolina. Um, I do hope that there are ways that, uh, the Bernie campaign, uh, and the people who are representing it. So when you guys go out to canvas, I think, um, you know, figuring out how to, speak with uh, older voters, uh, retired voters about Bernie's platform, people who have so much to gain from his platform, um, you know, people who have so much on the line when it comes to social security cuts, people who are on the front line of realizing the degree to which Medicare falls short. Um, I think that those are things that uh, you can really reach uh, a new cadre of voters to speak to uh, when it comes to Bernie's platform. And so I think that we should be thinking about doing that as well, because uh, when you look at the numbers, I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, older voters don't have anything to gain from a Biden presidency and Biden style of governance. Uh, on that tip, on a scale of like 10 to plus 10, 10, 10, how important <laughs> is it that Bernie Sanders, like basically, and, and people representing it, tell older people, and I'm, you know, set aside some people object to this ideologically, but just start talking about FDR constantly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and that is what Bernie does when he is, you know, confronted with, oh, you're a democratic socialist. And I do, I don't know exactly the right way to thread that needle, but I do think that uh, Bernie does do a good job of sort of making radical ideas seem seem normal. And I don't know, I, I don't know the degree to which like FDR was a resonant figure for older voters through the the 80s and 90s when they were still democratic leaning like the F, the, the great depression new deal generation i wonder if the one problem i mean just a problem with the le- being in the left in the us in general is the struggle to find like a usable past you know so is fdr still that usable past with all of his his complications is he even resonant for older voters? I don't know. In my anecdotal experience, one hundred percent, he is. So that's worked on, like for t- sure. And again, I'm speaking anecdotally. Yeah. And I also, well, I'll tell you my second thought on that. But first, what do you think? Um, I mean, I think it depends on like a, a 65 year old. You might have a, a tougher sell with FDR than an 85 year old, right? Um, I think that makes sense. I guess it depends on who's at the door. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm saying any. I'm talking about people who are potentially persuadable to like. Yes, if you're 65 and you, you know, FDR was a secret communist who let Pearl Harbor happen. No, but if you are in the realm of this conversation, absolutely. Yeah, and anchoring it in, like, you know, I think this is another place where we need to have a, you know, an obvious synthesis where it's like, okay, yes, there was historicizing the New Deal and understanding the obvious critiques that exist there. And of course, but then actually, I think I think to some extent realizing that like overcorrecting to not recognize the scale of that accomplishment empowers neoliberal politics today. And I yeah. do think people who are, yes, I think people who are persuadable, it it, it is the closest we have. Because I mean, like JFK isn't that. Right. Like even if there was like other models, they, they don't fit in that tradition in the same way. That's the closest we have to basically some form of American social democracy. And that's a yeah. good thing and should be honored and put forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially if you think about the New Deal moment as something that was not just FDR, but the most massive upsurge in militant worker organizing that we've seen in this country with the you know the C the 30s CIO strike wave and everything that I'm not I don't think that's necessarily conveyable at the doors but the moment when one is referencing the new deal era that conveys a lot and not only the kind of exclusions and problems of that period as well yeah i think that's a good thing to do i think that that is also a great way to think about what we mean when we say that the sanders campaign is a movement and that sanders is the movement candidate uh, that you don't get the New Deal in the 1930s without militant labor action, without um, people in the streets um, fighting for unemployment rights. Um, you don't get it without the you know bonus army. And so I think that those things are really important uh, to keep in mind that it's really the 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 uprising, the organizing of people outside of electoral politics that force the hand of people inside of it. Uh, and that a good way to think about Sanders is not only is he a consistent leftist who isn't funded by people we don't want to be funding our politicians, but he has a credible relationship with people outside of electoral politics, people like the people in this room and people within the labor movement who are trying to grow the labor movement, who are trying to push it to the left, uh, that he's going to be the candidate that's beholden to them and who's in the best position to uh, implement the things that will materially benefit their lives and that will uplift them the way that they deserve to be. Uh, and that that, I think, is the most energizing thing for me about Bernie's campaign. I think that that's a really difficult thing for the media to wrap their heads around. But that's, I think, foremost when I think about the analogy with Bernie and FDR, uh, that has a lot to do with it. Well, we've been talking about how the how how we should represent the Bernie campaign knocking on doors. How do you think that the media representation of Bernie has changed since he became the, the front runner? And what should, how should we be reacting to that? I think that as far as I've been able to see, uh, I think that the media and to some degree a lot of voters still have trouble wrapping their heads around the idea that Sanders is uh, 
that the, the argument for Sanders isn't necessarily a strictly electoral one, that it does have so much to do with movement politics outside of the legislative arena. And I think that that's why you get so many artic- uh, arguments about, you know, what what has he been able to do in Congress? Uh, you know, we can't we can't pass this. We don't have the votes. And those things, you know, are are considerations. You can't you can't hand wave them away. Uh, but the responses to a lot of those things, I think, has to do with building a movement and amassing people and that I haven't seen the media quite get that. I think that in recent weeks, as far as I've can, I can tell, I think that they've they've really, you know, this this oppo that we keep hearing about that is about to come. Like, exactly. Wait, just wait till Sanders is vetted. And then someone finds a video of him, you know, talking about the Sandinistas uh, in Cuba. So I think I think that some of the red baiting uh, will start to happen. But I think that he's also in a position where, uh, you know, by definition, someone who has been a self-identified socialist in electoral politics for 30 or 40 years uh, has, by definition, been vetted and red baited. And I think it's not effective. I hope it continues to be less effective. But that's kind of the new wave that I've seen more recently. I don't know if you guys are going to call him a socialist. (laughs) I think I think they might. (laughs) Just like they called again, just like they called Harry Truman an FDR socialist. Like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to this is not the Truman talked about that. Truman said every good thing we've ever done has been called socialism. Did you just watch a verbatim did you, you know, just watch the screener of a certain documentary that's coming no, out? No, I actually haven't. Which one? Oh, uh, a documentary, socialism called Socialism, that no. my friend Yael Bridge is making. Oh, that's awesome! It opened. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to say All this. Of, it, op- it opens with that that Truman speech. Shouts to <laughs> I'm I'm a Harvey JK guy. As people watch my show, yeah. so shouts to Harvey on that stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I mean, I think what you have now. By the way, like we've been joking about it, but honestly, to have like frontline media personalities say that Bernie is like being inappropriate by campaigning in Massachusetts, <laughs> this is great. I mean, you're making like such complete fools of yourselves. Like when you get to a point when you just look, Bree isn't here. I can swear, right? You do whatever yeah, want. Yeah. We're just, all non-campaign employees. <laughs> okay. No, I'm just kidding. When you just look like a complete embarrassing fucking idiot saying something like that, even just as a process, you saw this happen with Trump, right? Uh, when the re- when the pushback to him just became embarrassing, right? I-, I think that's a good thing. So I think we're 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 there's like three things I see happening in media. One is they're embarrassing themselves, which is good. Two is they're starting to grapple with the actual policy agenda and why people want or, you know, there was supposedly a quote on MSNBC I couldn't track down. It might have been like off air that somebody was just like, you know, I'm kind of getting young people like, you know, if you're only making like 80 grand a year, you might want help with healthcare. care. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's like, where are these amazing jobs? You know, so. So these people really are, and I think self-interest and ideology and closed social circles are overdetermined. But I think they're starting – so embarrassing themselves, starting to grapple with the policy and all they've got left and the only effective fear they have left is he can't win. And so that's really, to me, I just tune out all the other stuff. Like I have answers for it. We can take care of it, whatever, and they can make fools of themselves. That's great. But electability is the only relevant argument left. And once that bridge is crossed, done. 
And the thing about electability is I get why the Bernie campaign has to lead with Bernie beats Trump. And I believe strongly that Bernie is the best candidate to take on Trump. But Trump is also true that Trump will be a formidable candidate. Uh, usually, But by the way, can anybody honestly say, and I think in 2016 this would be different uh, in a uh, Biden being a bit more on the ball. Uh, That's a euphemism. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I could could anybody with just honestly and without breaking out laughing see any of these other people even being able to credibly compete against Donald Trump? I don't see it. I saw the Bloomberg <laughs> thing where he was ducking under the podium. Trump is yeah. not only would Trump beat Bloomberg, he would have genuine joy doing it. <laughs> Trump is really funny. He's incredibly funny. And 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 it's a big problem that so many people who have led the like it's basic strategy. You need to have some understanding of your enemy's appeal and their strengths. And you have a subculture. Sorry? <laughs> you have a subculture of people who, who project their cultural preferences, values, and humor and particular neuroses on the rest of the electorate. And for better or for worse, and I do mean for better and for worse, it's not there. Can I say one thing that I'm so happy that I think Bernie can take back from Trump, which is incredibly important. And for the past couple of years, I think that anyone left of center has come to just revile the idea of a rally because we're so used to the idea of Trump rallies, which are these really horrifying spectacles. Like a rally in and of itself <laughs> as a political tool is amazing. And if you've ever been to one of Bernie's, if any of you guys were at the Boston Common one yesterday, yeah. It was incredible. And They're that's what a lovely. rally should be. Like drum up that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of enthusiasm matters. Like I remember in 2016, I forget who did this study, but I think like one of the university teams that predicted Trump's win uh, basically looked at this thing that I think they termed the enthusiasm gap. That if you looked at the level of enthusiasm uh, around Trump versus the level of enthusiasm around Clinton, that this was a difficult thing to measure, but it was decisive. Uh, and I think that like rallies bring that out and rallies and drumming up that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of support, that kind of collective energy is the kind of thing that, you know, makes a super delegate awfully hesitant to throw their weight towards someone besides Bernie at a contested convention. Um, you know, I mean, I <laughs> I think that there's there's usefulness in being the supporters of the candidate that people really don't want to cross or really don't want to be annoyed by. And this is one of those times that. It's really great. So like that kind of energy around Bernie relative to other candidates is an amazing thing. And I'm glad that he's destigmatized <laughs> the concept in general after a couple of years of Trump. Right. And don't let them take that away from you. No. I mean that that is actually the only relevance of this whole Bernie Bro nonsense is it is it's it it's a whole game to try to take that energy away. So don't listen. And do you remember that New York Times at uh, editorial board interview question? They were like so you say you'll do rallies and Trump does rallies. What's the difference? Like they look <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's sort of like, yeah, it's a good. Uh, the rally good... is just a form. The content of the rally does not matter. If Nelson Mandela, Pinochet both gave speeches. Yeah. <laughs> this is Sarah Jaffe and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig 
is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by the Socialism 2020 Conference, which is taking place this July 2nd through 5th in Chicago. The Socialism Conference is the largest socialism conference in North America. It is where activists and organizers come to be inspired, to learn from each other, and to develop the political tools that make our movements stronger. This July 2nd through 5th, Socialism 2020 will feature meetings and discussions on the recent revolutionary movements around the globe, the history of black radicalism, Marxist theory and socialist history, trans liberation, and the fight to save our planet from climate catastrophe. Speakers at Socialism 2020 include Robin D.G. Kelly, Crystal Ball, Rosanna Rodriguez, Anand Gopal, Kate Aronoff, Richard Seymour, Sarah Jaffe, Megan Day, me, Daniel Denver, and many more. Socialism 2020 is organized by Haymarket Books, Jacobin, and the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. Register before May 8th for the early bird discount rate. Yeah, yesterday we've touched on it obliquely. You know, it was not an ideal outcome, but it wasn't. But it wasn't a it wasn't a disaster. Um, what I haven't been online or watching any sort of programming since yesterday. Do you have Do you two have a sense of of how the narrative is being shaped? Biden Biden's back. He bounced back. That, yeah. I think we probably could have foreseen, like, I never thought that his campaign was as dead as I wanted it to be after the first few states, because especially like when, I mean, South Carolina ended up better, better for Biden uh, than we even thought it would, uh, considering the polls. And um, I think that they're at this point really ready to throw their weight behind and really cheer for Biden. Um, I think that this is a situation in which we have to really think hard about how we relate to Elizabeth Warren's supporters. Uh, It's one thing, I mean, I've been very disappointed by the direction her candidacy has taken, uh, but I find it very heartening to speak to her actual supporters when I'm canvassing, who, as we've talked about, you know, people's personal beliefs don't tend to reflect uh, the Twitterati's. And I think that a lot of her supporters, they understand the arguments, they like Bernie, they want a progressive. Um, and so we have to think about bringing them uh, into our fold uh, against Biden, against Bloomberg. Um, and I think that we can, you know, do that in ways that are um, respectful and considerate uh, the way that everyone in this room is. Um, because I do think that from here on out, it's going to be, uh, there's there's going to be talk of Joe Mentum. It's too bad <laughs> that there's a long O in his name. And that it rhymes with momentum. Uh, <laughs> they're going to be really trying to make it happen, and we want to uh, push push that ball back up the hill. I think, yeah. I mean, Biden was always. I I I said up until the very minute he just started having disastrous performances. I always thought it was fundamentally a Sanders Biden race from the very beginning, and I think Biden, in a way, just as like the kind of establishment, liberal, whatever you want to call it, media just can never get Trump even for purposes of beating him and they hate and can't understand Bernie. I think a lot of people in our circles just don't get Biden. But if you get outside of our circles, this is an enormously liked person and he does have a likable personality and he does have a lot that, you know, 
I think also like you see it in, you know, like to, to sort of gently chastise some people on our side, like, yeah, people are quite aware that he has a bad civil rights record. I, a lot of African-American voters are used to dealing with politicians that have bad civil rights records, right? But they just haven't also been somebody who has been the first vice president of the first black president and was like incredibly loyal to them and clearly holds them in utmost regard and esteem and also has done like, you know, not making the case for him here, but like actually like was he arrested in South Africa? No. <laughs> if Bernie Sanders said I was arrested seeing Mandela, would that make him forced out of the race? Absolutely. But Joe Biden, of all of the terrible things he's done in Congress, his role with sanctions against the apartheid regime is actually one of the more constructive things he's ever done. So he, I, I think for purposes of dealing with him, all I want to hear about is trade deals and Social Security. I, I, real, I think those are the attacks against him that cut through to a mass audience, including other ones that are valid but don't have the same kind of resonance. But again, like, it doesn't I, resonate. That's not going to resonate. That's not going to resonate. Yeah, this it's a, guy it's a good reason for you to dislike him. Yes. It's a also, totally valid reason totally, to dislike him. But that's not going to resonate. When I go and I tell people, what do you think Joe Biden means? Because everybody always goes, Joe Biden's such an idiot. He thinks he could work with Republicans. And that's not true. He totally can work with Republicans. He can sit down with Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell can say, all right, here's my concession. I will not use overtly racist language anymore. And Joe will be like, Awesome. And then in exchange, let's do a, let's cut Social Security and Medicare and call it the Fiscal Responsibility Act of the 21st century. That will happen within the first year or two of this man being president. <laughs> you need to get out there and talk about that. That is, and it's not about not liking him. It's not about trying to take that image away from people. Most people do like him, and it has to just be really front and center. And also, I think subtly but legitimately asking like hey this guy's cast a lot of votes like on trade deals that trump knows how to run against do you think that he's going to be uh quick enough on his feet to be able to respond to that right now i think probably not so i i think that's that's a really really important thing to to focus on with regards to biden with warren i and i always try to make this distinction i really think when you're out with your peers and with people in real circumstances no matter who they are including Trump supporters, you have to approach people with much empathy and interest as possible and see where they're coming from. Uh, I, on a, and obviously I'm speaking for myself, on a campaign and surrogate level, uh, this campaign cannot be indulged. I, I, it's, it's a toxic force. It's running on pure negativity and entitlement, and it is not progressive at all. And, you know, so and I and you can say that respectfully, you don't have to, you know, whatever. I don't care if you do. You can do snake emojis. if That's funny. It's not a big deal one way or another, to be honest. But substantively and respectfully, like I would very much like to not see prominent personalities still going. Yeah, but Warren did this. No, she's an opponent. And she's actually an extremely negative, destructive opponent right now. And it's called politics. We're not in some type of like weird, you know, like we're not I don't I don't even know what goes on in people's heads. Like this isn't cool runnings. They're not gonna like get in each other's bobsleds and go across the line. They're running against each other. And she's running an impossible to win 
by normal democratic means race that is primarily predicated right now on entitlement and stealing it at the convention, uh, stealing it at a convention, attacking Bernie and massive personal entitlement, apparently. So that's not a normal, nice person that likes Warren and whatever. But as a campaign and as a candidate, we actually need to be clear. So, Natalie, like, what do you what do you think about that? Because I I was pro Bernie, anti Warren from the get go. But but I have sour I have but but I have become anti-Warren in an increasingly sour way in, Welcome. in recent months. I w- Been like, there. I, 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 <laughs> She's not good, folks. <laughs> They're talking about her more and more. Um, a lot of people are finally saying well, this. They wouldn't say it in the beginning, but I, it's always I, been true. I, I was mostly bugged by two things. Her, like, tech... Her, what? Well, three things. One, that she was clearly just trying to, like, steal... The, the Bernie movement away from the Bernie movement, which was... She was doing impossible. a single white female thing on Bernie. For people who don't know, there's a film that came out in 1992. Before most a, of you were alive. A stalker roommate who tries to steal their roommate's identity. SWF. Yeah, and so I thought of single white female. So I thought of Buttigieg with Obama, but I think Warren and Bernie it fits, which was just like, I have a movement. The, the foreign, the foreign, po- foreign policy and just like the kind of technocratic vision of politics. But it is true that like there are a lot of her supporters who can be won over. So how do we, how do we critique Warren and her campaign, especially as it becomes, I think more of a toxic force while building as big an off ramp as possible and, and mm-hmm. well cushioned and loving an off ramp as possible for her supporters. Cause we want all the votes. That's the idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I I more or less agree with the things you guys said, and I think that it is important to me to differentiate, uh, as as you concede, between the uh, candidate and the campaign and the supporters. Um, and you know, I, I think that we're all we're all so used to some of the MSNBC people and some of the people on Twitter who, you know, there tends to be a lot of beef between prominent Bernie people and prominent Warren people in the media. And that is not reflective of voters that I've spoken to, and it's not necessarily reflective of them uh, in terms of data. Um, you know, we will get a plurality or around half, uh, as far as I can tell, of the Warren voters. And I think that a lot of them support Warren in good faith. Uh, and so that does make it more complicated, but it's obviously an important thing to remember that I think that they are progressives who would be happy with Bernie in a lot of cases. Um, I, I think the tack, as far as I've noticed at the doors, I think people are starting to notice that she doesn't have a path to get anywhere uh, and that it is useful to consolidate. And I think that in terms of speaking to individual voters, uh, appealing to their um you know, their, their goals as opposed to browbeating them. Not that I think that anyone is about to do that at the door. Uh, but I think that, you know, a, a appealing to someone's desire to do the right thing and being kind and sometimes just putting on a pair of kid gloves and. But this is kind of like, I mean, and this is true for anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I guess I have a little bit of a problem with the frame that there's something like special and fragile about you know, Warren and the campaign in both senses. I mean, one, because it's like a bad campaign and it's the competition and I want the left to be more real about power in general. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because there is that, I mean, 
going back to the campaign in Massachusetts thing, that is actually the most objectively sexist thing I've read in this whole campaign cycle. That is so paternalistic and condescending. The idea that, that Natalie puts forward of just like, you know, I think most people that you speak to that are normal people are, you know, they're, I, I mean, that's part of our politics is actually having some respect for people's like thought process and ability to glean things. And so I think normal, persuadable people don't need to be like super coddled. And I think there is this like weird coddling discourse that is very specifically clustered around that campaign. And I don't want to feed into it. Well, it's not, I don't think it's coddling. I think it's like whenever you're knocking doors for anything, yeah. whether for Bernie or for any campaign, what you want to do, if possible, is affirm and redirect. Right. And so the affirm yeah. is, mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I appreciate that Elizabeth Warren supports Medicare for All, even if you, believe, even if you have like an asterisk in your head when you say that. But <laughs> she's on her way out. So... You know, like, or, or figure out the best way in. <laughs> I like how yours yeah. is even more harsh than mine. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded really Southy. You're just she's like, yeah, out. I get it. She's got great policies, but bada she's going to fucking bada lose. Yeah. There, there yeah. is a huge but difference. She's a loser. Yeah, that's being taken care of. <laughs> I would actually be more coddling than that. Yeah, there's, there's a huge difference in like how you speak to people as a canvasser versus like how you can tweet about people or speak at a podcast. And I'm, you know, I'm very much talking about like how to reach people while canvassing who in a lot of cases like you don't know if they need to be coddled or not like you're in their home you don't know them most people aren't as like highly into politics and I think can be very off put by you know the the kind of the way that we're talking about the Warren campaign here and the way that frankly the campaign deserves to be talked about at this point Um, with a super PAC flip-flop in particular I think you know like her point that it's difficult to be a nationally viable candidate while accepting no large donors and no super PAC money is absolutely true. And that's why we have to nominate Bernie Sanders. Yes. Because <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> like, he's doing it. It's a huge opportunity. We're doing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it actually would be, if you'll indulge me for a second, and please don't do this <laughs> ever, if you actually went door to door. Do as he work. says, not as he does, or yeah, something or like that. Don't do anything. Don't do anything he yeah, says or does. Right, exactly. So if or intimates. Were, if, but if you were to actually go to door to door and be like a fourth obnoxious as people are on Twitter, like you were like, oh, you support Elizabeth Warren. You're like, this is you right now. You think I'm like a cow. <laughs> yeah, just so hiss like, at people at the door. It's going to go awesome. Like repulsive beeves. <laughs> like, oh, really? This is, yeah, this is you right now. It's kind of like this. Yeah. Oh, your candidate's losing. How's that feel? <laughs> You want to cry? You want to cry? Yeah. Do not do any of that. Get a stuffed snake. Yeah, you have like a stuffed snake with you. You're like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) A clown mask. This is you right now. Put it on. (laughs) Don't do any of that. I will say that like tweeting a snake at a news story is not harassment and I will die on that hill. I'm not I'm not saying you should do it, but like harassment is a word that has a definition. That shouldn't be cheapened. And the thing about the snake emoji thing, which is it's really a window into this entire misconstrual of what's going on with Bernie supporters online. One, as you said, it's like a pretext to try to undermine the fact that Bernie is the campaign with actual passionate supporters. But it's also a pretext to attack youth supporters because Twitter is a place where young people live and Bernie is the only campaign with a mass 
of youth support. Mm. So yes, if you go after Bernie on Twitter, there are just more people on Twitter and who are kind of natives to Twitter who will be there to yell at you about it. Mm -hmm. And specifically with the snake emoji, which, you know, immediately people were going to this like Garden of Eden <laughs> thing. It's a it it's it, it is citational of youth Twitter culture of like the that Taylor Swift feud that I don't even I'm know not even about. going that far. Just yeah. fuck you. Yeah. Like, don't ever use Bernie bro to me. It's it, it. No, honestly, it's a it is a class for brethren, brethren, whatever. No, well, Bernard, first of all, Bernard for, brethren. First of all, Bernie bros are good. Full stop. And secondly, that whole much like thank you bros who want everybody to have health care. And secondly, like it, that narrative is pure cynicism. Well, and one thing that's not mentioned a lot is the way that this liberal chiding concern trolling of Bernie supporters is really a continuation of the whole civility discourse protecting the Trump administration from, you know, when Sarah Huckabee Sanders wasn't served dinner because she enables, you know, this monstrous presidency and everyone was like, oh, you can't be mean to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. This is the same thing all over again. Elizabeth Warren's campaign will request that Donald Trump do a mandatory emotional intelligence training <laughs> before the general election. I think another thing that like explains the Bernie bro phenomenon, Dan's right, they're disproportionately young and disproportionately online and disproportionately keyed into this internet culture. Uh, and they're also disproportionately like taking the dissenting position, right? Like the reason that everyone in the media has also noticed how awful these Bernie bros are is because they're the ones making arguments in prominent places against Bernie. Right. And like people taking the, by definition, antagonistic position come at them. Uh, this is a shared experience. They're like, yeah, you, you get that. I mean, try to find Biden stands online. It is not easy. <laughs> I do think that there could be a much bigger discussion. Like there's an essay everybody should read. I, you know, some people it's controversial. I think it's, it's called exiting the vampire castle. And it's like the definitive critique of like toxic left culture and online discourses. And it's a very strong critique of a lot of the kind of like puritanical, like, you know, exclusionary sort of rhetoric of the online left and strategy. And, and it's a really good piece, but Look, if you want to have a big conversation about why people are toxic and online and how we dehumanize each other, I actually think that's a completely valid conversation. But it's a conversation about that. It is not the conversation about how it manifests in a particular campaign we want to demonize and lie about. So I think that's what you guys are putting forward is really important. If you want to have a conversation about gender dynamics or how somebody falsely accuses you of anti-Semitism, like, okay, those are valid, broad terrain topics, but they're weaponized cynically at one campaign. We can't indulge it. And it is it is reasonable to point out the fact that, you know, this Bernie bro narrative that's sticking to the Sanders campaign, who, you know, whose supporters are poorer and whose supporters are more people of color than, you know, the people who are uh, coalescing around the Warren campaign and that they get to have the high road and look down at these uncivilized, terrible Bernie bros. Like, I do think that that's important to think about. Like, what campaign gets stuck with this persistent neg? I, th I think um, one thing that it's doing as well is that it's, it's a way to talk about the Bernie movement without talking about mm -hmm. the Bernie movement. It's the primary way that Bernie supporters are talked about in the media when if you've ever been to a Bernie rally, it's just such wholesome content. Yeah. And so full of sincerity. You're saying that love. Bernie doesn't go up there and he goes, all right, 
point number one in a targeted harassment campaign. <laughs> First, <laughs> you say you hope harm happens to somebody. That's not a threat. That's a wish. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. It just this horrible old man saying he wants everybody to have health care. So evil. It's just very lovely. Yeah. Th- th- these these very lovely, beautiful things. And I think specifically since the Queens, Bernie is back rally when the line will you fight for someone you don't know was rolled out to such incredible effect and since then and brie has talked about this a bit in one of her here the uh here the burn episode sometime after that the campaign has taken this generally i mean it's always been there but this profoundly kind of moral turn towards solidarity and we were talking about this last last night with with thea that like will you fight for someone you don't know is a way to actually explain solidarity. It's like reading a definition of solidarity. Will you tweet a snake emoji for something? You don't- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At someone that you don't know. <laughs> yeah. But don't you guys, th- don't, don't you both think that like the mo- the Bernie, Bernie supporters and the movement generally has still not been covered? Really? It's not in the yeah, to use to use to use the language preferred by some of Bernie's detractors, it's a it is a remarkable erasure. What I, what do you all think about like coverage of the has there been like much coverage of the movement? I agree. I think I mean I, I was kind of getting at this earlier. I think it's the biggest thing that the media has not been able to wrap its head around, has not been able to explain. Um, I think especially a couple months ago, uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign was kind of floating the idea that it was a movement campaign. Um, You know, she was explicitly talking about triangle shirtwaist in her speeches and, you know, different different historical movements. Um, But she's she's not a movement candidate. She's. Pardon? (laughs) There's there is movement, but it's not a movement. Um, I, I think that I think that people people don't understand and they they do see a rally and equate it to uh, the Trump camp, which I mean, I guess, you know, I think Dan Dan would be better equipped to speak about uh, the degree to which the Trump phenomenon is. a mo- I guess you can describe it as a movement. It's a movement going in exactly the wrong direction. And he's been able to tap into energy outside of electoral politics in his own horrific way. Uh, in a way that we'd want the Bernie campaign to. Um, but yeah, they 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 don't understand it. Uh, the media doesn't understand it. I think voters of a lot of other candidates don't understand it. I think that, you know, if if it's if you completely don't look at the idea that it is a movement campaign, I think that Sanders and Warren do look like pretty similar candidates in some ways, as long as you don't, you know, you don't look at foreign policy. Like, you know, the, the, the differences are very obscured if you're not looking at what it means to get 13,000 people to a rally, at what it means that teachers in state after state have, you know, had ties to the Bernie campaign and have cited it as some of their inspiration for going out on these wildcat strikes and bargaining for the common good. So things that aren't just wages and health benefits, but things that are about class sizes and, you know, getting counselors and nurses in their schools for their students and their communities, um, that those things have been explicitly linked to the Bernie campaign in a lot of cases. Uh, those are things that that we understand about Sanders uh, that's really important about his candidacy and why we can't miss this opportunity uh, because this doesn't happen a lot. Oh, I mean, no question. I, I would just add to that. I mean, I actually think it is worth, I mean, I think the differences on domestic policy actually are pretty significant. But 
I think it's also that the dynamic with the media is that they can't fully cover and acknowledge the campaign because then they would have to fully cover and acknowledge the material crisis that is driving it. And that's antithetical to where they are in the ecosystem, right? And then I think beyond that, like David Frum's like Bernie can't win piece is actually really worth reading because it's 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 a prayer that most Americans are actually very satisfied with things and the only thing they're upset about is Donald Trump's Twitter feed, right? And and has no connection with just the real serious radical deprivation and instability that most, including people that are actually relatively privileged economically existing, right? And in addition to that, I think it is actually really important to, to hit this theme about how the Sanders campaign looks, how it communicates, how people that are drawn to it. Because, in t I mean, there's been various movements that have arisen that all play really important, important roles in the precursor of this. And then things kind of exploded with Sanders in 2016, and, and it's kind of taken another, another level. But you had a couple of decades where really like the quote unquote left was it was college campuses. It had barely any relationship with anything to do with power in the Democratic Party. It had no serious influence on policy, and it primarily was various games of social practice and speech patterns and things like that. Again, some of which is valuable, some of which I think is not valuable, but that's really besides the point. It, whether you love it or not, it's in a certain very narrow set. And so part of what you're seeing with Sanders, like what's, you know, you're, you're just seeing the notion that, oh, this is what it looks like when a really broad set of people from different um, backgrounds, economically, culturally, racially, come to a left political project and they haven't been trained at a handful of institutions to have a certain set of social practices. And they might have different tastes, they might move differently, they might have you know different uh, whatever. And I think that not only in the reaction to it not only is the reaction to it from the media and other campaigns a problem specifically with Bernie in the context we're in, it's really a broader showing that there is a group of people that feels extremely comfortable speaking for large swaths of other people, but definitely does not want to be teaming up with them. And, yeah. and that is a radical and very clear difference. I think, I think, yeah, I think it's smart to point to, to Frum's piece because a lot of the incomprehension on the media's part towards the entire Bernie phenomenon is premised on an incomprehension or ignorance or denial of these broader material conditions that are driving people to Bernie and that are also just more generally driving a breakdown in politics as we have known it. But I And I also think that another thing that it obscures, that's one key factor, is also the kind of left lineage behind Bernie, which is specifically a cycle of movements that begin under Obama, three critical movements. And I've yet to read an article in the mainstream media that sort of contextualizes the Bernie movement in the history, of, in the context of the history of these movements, which is, one, the immigrant rights movement that rebelled against Obama, two, Occupy, and three, Black Lives Matter. And I think an interesting difference between 2016 and 2020, and obviously I was like a very strong Bernie supporter in 2016 and it was a great campaign, it was more specifically like a product of Occupy, I think, whereas 2020... And we're seeing this reflected in the the more diversified base of the Bernie campaign, much more diversified base in 2020, is that it's actually kind of like a more full culmination 
of all three of these movements that had successes but came to different sorts of ends or or at least you know tr- moments of transition it's it, it really is um i think coalescing all of the these decisions things. inside this movements about whether right. it's about policy and power or spots and brokering right on behalf of right. you know particular particular constituencies and the establishment that is right. a very and that's another very positive reason it's it's very good for the overall health of the left how poorly Warren's campaign is doing because it's predicated on get a bunch of kind of affluent people to vote and then signify with a specific type of discourse which you can hire PR people to teach you how to talk. I mean, Mike Bloomberg's writing around saying, like, I'm aware of my white privilege. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> if this is not connected with actual he said he would not be yeah. where he was if he wasn't if he knew that if he wasn't he wouldn't be where he was if he was black. So so that or it would be harder. So we need to be real I mean, again, this is where I always say I'll just do my one like if you haven't read him yet, this country needs an emergency Adolf Reed reading, and he explains everything that we see today. Very important. Like, I mean, they would have voted for him also not if he's a Democrat and if he didn't have a few good things that he pretended to support. Well, yeah, and, and which is what, which is Bernie's general election strategy is saying, calling Trump on specifically promises that he made on economics to working class Americans and obviously has totally been a fraud and a failure on well i want to ask you guys this though because what can really concerns me about turning out a base for bernie is i think these different parts of like how you flip back voters i i i think is is very complicated and one of the things that i'm really concerned about with it kind of runs along a line of like actually i think a lot of the young people that need to turn out in college campuses and some of the more like disaffected voters I'll just this anecdote. I was getting driven back from a, a an event I did in Pennsylvania the other day, and this it was actually a, it was it was really sweet. It was this woman was the driver, and her boyfriend was in the car because it was a long trip, and so we were all like talking. And they asked me what I did, and they were kind of like, "Ooh, we don't want to talk about politics." And I was like, "Oh, I, neither do I." I'm, you know, <laughs> great. But they asked me a few questions, and it was very clear like they did not like Trump. And they were like, yes, Bernie Sanders is obviously a decent person. I think it's so unlikely that these folks are going to vote. And if I could put a, a – it's just a sense of utter defeat and that nothing is changeable or possible. And if you look really specifically at – you know, I, and I don't – in some ways I don't care where the message is coming from. I have seen like the head of the BJP party in India the other day said that if Bernie keeps doing this, they're going to get involved in the election. I don't know what that means. But but um, when you look at like YouTube comments, social media, this type of space of people who are not going to like vote for Trump probably or they're not like super concerned about socialism. They're not like all of these like bougie constituencies that we're always talking about. They're the type of people who would say, like, I used to think Bernie was the real thing, and then he endorsed Hillary Clinton. Now, I don't care. I'm not getting into the substance of that. I'm saying they have a very particular view of what is possible, of somebody selling out or not selling out. And I think there's a lot of messaging that could go to these people that just is along the lines of it's not worth it. And that's actually one of the reasons – that's one of the things I'm most scared about is somehow conveying to people – that are atypical voters, that this is actually possible. And again, it's so disconnected from the energy and momentum that people feel around this campaign. A lot of people still totally feel like 
including people who like Bernie, that this is just all hopeless. And I think that is the most uh, potent messaging to get to people if you just want a depressed turnout. And that's going to be a major strategic challenge for beating Trump. I, I agree. And I think that we, we have a lot to gain from like flipping the practicality talking point on its head. Um, you know, one of the most frustrating uh, arguments that you get from, you know, Warren supporters from the Biden camp is, uh, you know, Bernie's Bernie's platform sounds great. How are you going to implement it? Or, you know, you vote for Warren if you actually want her to get things done. Uh, and what's I mean, silly about that is institutional constraints are very real. The, no, the we've Bernie never campaign done anything on Amazon because nobody wrote a blog post on it yet. <laughs> yeah. Like the the Bernie campaign will have to and the Bernie administration uh, we'll have to contend with extremely serious institutional constraints. We all know that. We are all smart enough to realize that we are up against um, you know, a lot of anti-democratic forces that have uh, disproportionately helped the Republican Party stay represented, maintain a majority, uh, govern horrifically and anti-democratically. That's a big deal. And, and then there's have transnational to capital. Yeah, there. <laughs> that's a that's another little boomerang in the system, but. <laughs> I think that so so if you if you step back and think okay what what is the solution to all of that um the the, the solution will never be vote harder the solution will never be <laughs> write better legislation that's more clever like have a better plan hire a better Kamala Harris alum to you know write write a paragraph in your uh, newest plan really like that will never be the answer the answer will always be to marshal people power outside of electoral politics to change the context wherein these things happen. And that is literally our only chance. That is literally our only option. It's completely bizarre that anyone has been able to steal the narrative to say that there's some more realistic, smarter, savvier, wonkier way to make their way around the institutional constraints that any administration will have to deal with. Uh, that's, That's what we have to do. The only realistic way out of it is to... Pardon? Yeah, change. I mean, change, change what's possible. And we do that by marshalling people power. And that's what we've got. And that's what no one else has. It's a moonshot. And it, but it's mm-hmm. also like literally the only thing that's available. And I, yeah, I yeah. think, I think, I think it's a little bit different than my concern of people who are, I'm, I think it's a dissatisfaction that is way beyond practicality questions. Like, I think these are people that actually deeply understand the dynamics we're talking about on some level. This is like profound they, disillusionment. Yes. And I, I think that that's actually a yeah. much smarter place to be than thinking there's a more wonky option that will solve it. But when it comes to that, yeah, Natalie, you're so like, what what is actually practical here? Because that whole like better plan is the most delusional type of thinking we have in modern politics. Some of the realignment of disillusioned voters who I totally agree have a more rational perspective than those that think only techno- only a more technocratically able, capable politician will get it done. I mean, because if you are a poor person in this country, very little has changed for you under years and decades of presidents of both major parties. So it is rational to believe all politicians are the same, all presidents are the same, why would I vote? And so it's a major challenge to say Bernie is different. It's going to be tough. But look, he's been consistent for all of these years and he's going to fight. And we are all going to fight with everything we have to get actual change implemented, the change that people actually want. 
But that said, some of the realignment, I think practically, some of it, ha- we want as much of it to happen in the primary and then in the general as possible. And there are big opportunities in both of them to make that happen. But some of the activation of, of non-voters is going to happen once Bernie is president and gets stuff passed and transforms people's existences materially because that is what transforms people ideology. A generation of people who have their college debt gotten rid of is a generation of people who are permanently aligned towards Bernie politics. And we can go down the board of different sorts of policies that will materially change people's circumstances and thus ideologically transform their politics because ideology is always fundamentally material. And so the, the challenge is to do as much of this as we can as possible before so that Bernie can be president. Um, but then once that happens, there is a true opportunity to to permanently transform U.S. politics in ways that that are hard for me or anyone to to truly get our brains around right now, I think. All right, should we end with that? Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Go knock doors for people you don't know. What? Go knock doors for someone you don't know. Tell them. Tell them. Say it. Wait, Stay in final, canvas. final message, please. Go knock on some doors for someone you don't know. <laughs> Yeah, don't just knock on doors of people you already know. That'd be weird. That's what the burn app is for. (laughs) Michael Brooks is the host of The Michael Brooks Show and a contributor to The Majority Report. Natalie Shore is a writer, researcher, and DSA member in Boston. Her work focuses on health, history, and politics. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the workers must put up their own candidates in order to preserve their independence. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. That is very helpful. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Hold up. 